Killing Type, a novel by Wayne Jones. Chapter 19. Ulrich, Priscilla, poisoned. The police eventually concluded that sulkinicoline, one of the drugs that some American states still administer in lethal injections, was used. My research for the book has made me a regular feature at news conferences and the like, and I do not think I merely flatter myself by saying that I am known and trusted as a presence by the police. One officer confides this detail to me, which had gone unreported and, alas, unasked by the Gazette and other media. You know, technically it is a poisoning. The killer injected this stuff, but it's suffocation, what we call asphyxia, which kills the person. The drug paralyzes the whole body, even the respiratory muscles, so that the person just can't breathe. It may sound simple and clean and peaceful, but it's a pretty horrific way to die. He also tells me some of the other details about this death, preliminary conclusions which they've reached in these early stages of the forensic investigation. It appears that the murderer broke into the woman's apartment, or rather, that he simply opened a door which had been inadvertently left unlocked. Priscilla, the officer continues, in a touching but somewhat pathetic conversion to the first name, was tied up, gagged, and, we think, injected while the bad guy sat at the kitchen table and on a single sheet of paper using a pen which he brought with him and took away with him, he wrote P.U. number 7, a reference, of course, to this being the seventh killing. There was a sense of genuine concern in his voice and in his small actions, pursing of lips, bowing of head, voice lilting and breaking ever so slightly as he described some of the crude details. And that surprised me, inured as I am after about 20 more years of life experience than he has had and a full decade in academia. I do not consider myself jaded or unsympathetic, but rather, shall we say, practical, commonsensical, realistic. The rigor and discipline demanded by the writing of a book of the type I am engaged in also diminish my sentimentality and any easy tendency toward overt emotion. It is perhaps unseemly and selfish to mention at this juncture, but my treatment at Toronto University by that execrable department head and the other assorted toadies under his control also has hardened me slightly so that I can stand apart and intellectually appreciate the sorrow of a situation, but not be so overcome that I stammer into ineffectiveness. But where was I? Yes, Priscilla Ulrich. The police officer. I note the killer's heinous reference to number seven, the reduction of serial murder to a simple enumeration, which is being worked through like a list of goals. But I can't take any solace in the fact that there are, quote, only three more killings left, if one can trust a madman's email. The swath through this city is wide. The damage has been done, as the raver ranted to me just last night. Though not escaping the bonds of verbal cliché, he does, as he would say himself, and with these words, no doubt, have a point. The town has changed. There are fewer people on Princess Street at any time of the day, and along residential streets I have noticed an increased circumspection. Family members actually clustered together on verandas more closely, 
as if to fend off attack even from humble academics out for an even the eating stroll. The media deal only in extremes, interspersed among the column inches and live updates of minutiae about who has been killed and where and when and how. Lots of how, but alas no why or by whom. There are stories about puppies born or rescued or enhancing the residents' lives in a senior's home. The family members were devastated by this death, as should not be surprising. I am surprised that any family holds up at all in such dark circumstances. Imprinted in my mind's eye now is the image of the parents at the press conference, both a little unsteady at the microphone, and a large group of friends and more distant family members, cousins and the like, forming what looked like a powerful force behind them. The father's voice cracked repeatedly as he ranged between sorrow and anger and apparent utter incomprehension during his brief statement. His wife, Priscilla's bereft mother, remained silent during the whole two minutes or so, and I and the rest of this city will remember the boyfriend making his way up from the crowd behind the parents, raising his fist in a wordless threat or other gesture to the killer, still on the loose out there, or perhaps to the god who had not deigned to intervene while one of his creation was being savaged. Apologies, reader, but I have been reading diatribes all evening. The parents moved just as wordlessly aside as the boyfriend stepped up, the sea parting for him, and his mouth seemed to be working as his fist was in the air, as if he were a person who had never spoken but had steadfastly refused to gently accept his condition. But no sound came forth, and eventually his arm and his head sank down simultaneously, and he simply turned around and disappeared again into the crowd behind the podium. The parents' lawyer said something mercifully short into the microphone. Respect, all, wishes, alone, thank you. And the scene was over. It is exactly an hour since the end of that press conference. I scurried away as the crowd did and found a seat here on a bench by the lake. I could see that some of the reporters pressed to the front of the room, I I suppose hoping to catch one of the family members in an impromptu answer to one of their insightful questions. So, how do you feel? And I knew that my equanimity could not support such crassness. The light is just perfect, making absolutely everything beautiful here, and the breeze is just right. I do have a moment of hopeless, incredulous terror when I mentally remind myself that all these people have been killed and there is no success in the apprehension of suspects. Two big young men, one one without a shirt, are throwing around a football about 100 meters in front of me, and I watch the simple sing-song movement, back and forth, back and forth. I recoil at one of the tosses, though, as the fully clothed one overthrows and the shirtless one, running back and concentrating on the descending ball, is on a collision course with a heedless jogger. I watch the horrible ballet move towards its bumpy conclusion, but at the last moment the jogger takes an abrupt turn and heads toward a companion seated on the grass. The football is caught rather spectacularly, and the receiver also tumbles to the grass, rolls twice or thrice, and then comes to a victorious stop on his stomach. He gets up and walks back closer to his quarterback, while the jogger is now engaged in an animated conversation with a beautiful young woman. 
I have to say that this little bit of encouragement, harm averted, everything working out innocently well, is not quite enough to prevent me from despairing of those two doomed projects, one a poor scholar's attempt to write a book and to solve a crime, and the other the project of humanity itself. Forgive me, but I tend to fret more grandly when I am near water at this time of the early evening. Last week, the Wednesday, I think, I happened to bump into Rachel, the ever-helpful librarian at a used bookstore. I was trolling among the murderous stuff, as usual, and as I exited my aisle, there she was right there in front of me, seeming to proffer more humane fare, a book about Istanbul, an anthology of 20th-century art criticism, a couple of Dickens. We conversed animatedly, as I have always seemed to be able to do with this delightful woman, but eventually, as our talk again turned to murder, and in particular these nosting murders, her face sallowed somewhat, and she looked at me dead on. Andrew, I find these days all I have are the, sm- are the small things. I have sort of lost my fascination with the forensic side of the whole mess, and I find myself concentrating on hokey things like what the moon looks like on the water when I take a walk along the lake or just having a good meal on a quiet, simple day at home, or, well, you know, just anything that's as far away as possible from all the killing. She paused a moment, looked down at the ground, and then up in the air, and then deadpanned me again. Still, she continued, do you know what the worst of it is? Even the small things are starting not to work for me, like they're not enough. My friend Jennifer and I were talking about it all the other night, late, very late, and we both ended up thinking that it, uh, the murders and all of that, it's like black water, this flood of black water that is just destroying everything. People are dead, yes, that's for sure, and families, oh my God, I think the remaining families have it so much worse, but the whole thing is just spreading and spreading. I'm not making any sense now. I assured her that she was, and the poor girl fairly fell into my arms. I was about to hold her more closely to try to provide some smidgen of solace, but suddenly she pulled away. I'm sorry, Andrew, she said, and I tried to reassure her that there was no need for any apologizing. She wiped a tear from her eye, smiled awkwardly, and continued. I guess I just don't know what to do. What can work apart from the police finding this guy and locking him up for a long time? But in the meantime, I hoped I could distract myself with a few things, like take pleasure in a few things. But those are disappearing. I reached out to touch her on the arm, and she seemed warmed and surprised by the contact. Listen, I said to her, why don't we get together sometime this weekend if you're free? We can talk some more again. That would be lovely. I'll give you a call. And with that, I was happy that I could bring some semblance of happiness to at least one stricken person in this town. The crowd is thinning. My own impotence to apparently do anything to help Rachel or anyone else is keeping me moored to this bench. I have an image of myself as an average man, waving his arms in the air frantically here, driven to insanity by sheer frustration. I scream in this silent image, but on the bench, in the sad, inethereal heaviness of reality, I can do nothing except grunt myself to to my feet. The sky has purples and pinks in it, 
a background of black with no classic blue at all. The walk home takes me past the patios along Ontario Street, and I am simultaneously heartened and very sad to see so many people so oblivious to the threat. There was a report in the newspaper on the weekend about the effect that the murders have had on tourism. Surprisingly little, it turns out. The exact decline escapes me now, but I believe it was in the range of 10%. I find this astounding. Come to Nosting, I can hear the website shouting. There's only been seven people killed, and it's highly unlikely that this psychopathic murderer is going to get the little old you. It's chilly. I shake my head, hike up the collar of my shirt, and break into a run for no reason in particular. When I stop in front of the house, I am panting so hard that I worry that I won't be able to catch my breath. I am bent over, wheezing like someone with lung cancer, and as I try to concentrate on the details on the sidewalk, I feel the urgency easing, the desperate grasps at air no longer necessary. I right myself slowly and go in.